Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomises this ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews, I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars, not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdom each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. If you like the show, please leave a rating or review, or if not that, send an email to me and I will publish the best reviews each week on my blog. This week we have David Knopf, author of the fantastic book, 537 Days of Winter. David had embarked on the adventure of a lifetime as the station leader of Davis Research Station in Antarctica when the COVID-19 pandemic hit the world. After their ride home was cancelled indefinitely, what was supposed to be a routine mission became a high pressure cauldron of uncertainty and anxiety that pushed David's team to their absolute mental limits. David's story has a lot of similarities to those of all great leaders when they are faced with an extreme challenge. David had already spent years in training and preparation, exposing himself to incredible challenges by the time the 537 days challenge presented itself to him. David has some great anecdotes through this interview. One of the best is, it's okay to fail as long as you're trying and improving. Take the feedback, use your own systems and continually try to improve. You are still in the fight until someone says you have failed. You will be enlightened with how David forms his team around him for the 537 days challenge and how they work together. It is okay to ask for help if you don't know. A leader cannot know everything, but the cohesiveness of the team around them can fill that gap. David's final message to other leaders, take your ego out of it, take the feedback when you need to, and be like the man in the arena. Never sit on the sidelines, be part of the team that has a go win or lose. So how I wanted to do this is um, like you are the author of that beautiful book and I've read it and um, and I, I it just as soon as I read it I knew I had to interview you because there's so many little kind of offshoots in that of little things that you did in that or little or big things you did in that um, 537 days in Antarctica. But uh, what I'd like to explore first is um, is who are you? Who's David Knopf? Um, where does where does the man that um, or the leader that's uh, described in that book come from? Um, and so before we go there, not nearly everyone on this show gets asked this question: um, What was your first experience of leadership in your life? Oh, it's a good good question, and I think you're right. I mean. Until recently, I wasn't an author, a speaker, and a kind of you know, someone that has a book out and people know on the yeah know what to ask about. So it's been a big change in the last couple of years since that Antarctic season. But yeah, to go right back, I don't like as a kid and even as a student, I never really showed much promise in leadership. I was interested in it. And I did put my hand up. I think I was on like the student class president in year six or seven or something like that for a term and. Uh, but I was never, and I was, I might have been captain of a basketball team uh, when I was younger. I showed a little bit of promise in basketball, but it wasn't. It, 
none of those are really considered to be real leadership opportunities. And then you've always got a coach or someone that's probably uh, overseeing and pulling the strings. And but it was then after I I sort of left uni and and went um, went on to full time service with the Australian Army and I went overseas as a platoon commander at the age of. 22 um, to the Solomon Islands, leading a platoon of soldiers there. So that's 30 soldiers for anyone not in the not in the the army. But that was the first chance where it's like, okay, you're, this is actual leadership here. This isn't management. This is you are out there living with your platoon. You're out on patrol. You're often on, on different islands uh, within the Solomon's chain, completely detached from the headquarters, and you're getting your directions from your um, company commander via the radio every morning and every night. And that's it. And other than that, you, you're out there leading your Leading your platoon, you get your three sections below you, and your platoon sergeant helping you out. But by and large, that was my first opportunity to really get out there and lead, and, and I loved it. We had a great platoon, we had a great trip, and I came back from that just thinking, right, I, I know, I want, I know what I want to do with my life, and I want to lead out there in international relations and in environments like this, uh, but not necessarily in uniform. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Um, I mean, I, I've I've got where we want to find out about you where where you came from but you just kind of give us a bit of a cue then you said i loved it you know it was the best platoon of uh, people that i that i've worked with um what was special about it what 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 stuck what gave you the leadership bug from that experience what 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 was it i think what i loved about that experience um the leadership side of it like tactically we had a it was it was you know we used to call it an armed vacation so it was peacekeeping operations very very low level threat from there was some militia like remnant militia groups out there in the Solomon Islands chain but essentially you went out on patrol and it was community uh, engagement so you're out there trying to help the population get back on its feet and help the Solomon Islands police force to kind of maintain law and order so you're not out there on combat patrol so you don't have that fear which meant we had an approach of okay let's try and do something good for the communities here and, and then it was using the skills within the platoon to get out there and actually go rule okay, we're all here as infantry soldiers, but that's actually not necessary you know, 99.9% of the time. Mm. So it's using the skills within the platoon of some people have been teachers before. There's a couple of former chefs and you, you're getting out there, you're going into these villages and you're trying to work with the community to either help them rebuild some of the buildings or some of the infrastructure or some of the water pumps or, or help with that side of it. You've got the, the former teachers and other members of the platoon would go and work with the school and they'd be doing English classes or singing songs or something like that to try and give this, this positive kind of input to to the village or, or region that we're in that particular day or week or month. And and that was something you go, all right, we're actually making a difference here or you know, it feels like we're making a difference. Um, but then later on in the tour, we did get a chance to have some more tactical involvement of, of doing a couple of coordinate search operations and I'll talk a little bit about that in the book as well towards the end about those experiences of as a platoon commander it was everything you ever wanted it's like right cool here's a village yeah uh it's a platoon level operation off you go you're setting up you're patrolling through the jungle at night with your night vision gear on and all that sort of stuff and i i loved that tactical side of the planning of like all right here's a here's a problem yeah which the, then the amount of unknowns in those problems as well is the fascinating part. So you've got to come up with a plan, but you probably only know 10 to 20% of the picture of what's actually going to you know, be in that village on the particular night. Even the intelligence you get from the different sources before you go on an operation like that, they're, they're very loosely worded. There may be this, there might be this. There's indications that they've got this equipment or that there's somewhere between two and ten people that might be and you're just like 
do you, do you guys actually know anything um, <laughs> other than just a vague picture of hey, off you go? And and I know that won't be strange to anyone like yourself and others that have worked in either you know law enforcement or military settings. You just go, oh, we're basically going in there not knowing anything, so let's be ready for anything. Yeah. And off you go. And, and I like like quite liked it and quite enjoyed that. Lovely. Um, another question that all the guests always get asked, um, although I missed a couple, but I'm, I'm going to ask you it. Um, what's something about David Knopf that no one else knows? Oh, there's not too much. I, I feel like I am pretty open about my personality. Um, it surprises people I'm quite musical and artistic. So for those those people who have been stuck on an Antarctic station with me and, and others, you'll know that I... I if uh, if the occasion calls for it, I can grab a guitar and stand up on stage and, and sing my little heart out, uh, and, you know, within the, the genre of classic Aussie pub rock songs that go Good well stuff. on an acoustic guitar after 9pm. Yeah, But yeah. Uh, that's something that surprises a few people and probably doesn't match the rest of my personality at times. Good stuff. All right, well, that, that's kind of the, well, I suppose you could colloquially call them the, the icebreaker questions just to kind of get us, get us started. Um over to you. Uh, who is David Knopf, and how does this happen? Like you, you give us a bit of a hint, but how, knowing where you've ended up, um, how do you form the person you are today? Like you, you've given a a bit of a hint about your platoon uh, leadership um, at an early age, at twenty two, I think you talked about. Um, but how? Do, yeah. What happens before then to get to then? Yeah, and I love talking about this because I, I do a few talks at schools and different corporates, but when it, talking to schools, what I love about it is saying, you know, if I went back and spoke to 15 or 16-year-old me who wanted to be a fighter pilot um, and said, hey, you, you're not going to get to fly fast jets, but, uh, you know, you're going to end up an Antarctic expedition leader, you'll have been a station of voyage leader, you'll have been an infantry platoon commander, you'll have lived overseas, worked, worked in all sorts of fascinating locations and been part of, um, kind of international relations and not just reading it in books like you've been there to see it it would be something that i'd go wow that's a pretty cool career and i'd say yes to it but there's no set pathway like i didn't really set out to become what i am today to professionally but you know in so many other ways i did want to go out and live an adventurous life and not be stuck behind a desk you know just in in the one town and nothing wrong with that if that's what you, you you're up for but I certainly wanted to get out there and, and see the world and, and give it everything I had. And so, I, yeah, at school I was a, you know, moderate moderate achiever. I was, was never an absolute genius or anything, but I, did, I had pretty consistently good academic results. I had a lot of options. I started out doing, well, I wanted to be an engineer or uh, as, the, as the degree side of things to feed my becoming a fighter pilot yeah. ambitions, but at about... 15 or 16 those those plans started to shift away from hey okay probably don't really want to join the air force it wasn't quite working i was a little bit too tall as well so it was it was going to be a gamble of whether or not even if i got through all the uh, initial flight screening elements whether or not i'd even be allowed to fly fast jets and i'm like well i don't want to don't want to sign up for 15 years and have to fly hercules nothing against <laughs> pilots. but um so i kind of went all right what are my other options and i went to to university and, but join the Army Reserve. I'm like, all right, I'll go to uni, I'll join the reserves and I'll get a sense of what military life would be like, but I've also got one foot in the uh, university side of things. And then two years into uni, I realised that I was having a lot more fun in a green uniform running around on weekends. And yeah. then 
the opportunity came up to switch to full-time service to, to go over to the Solomon Islands uh, then, and I went, great, I'll, I'll take that, parked uni, went to the Solomons, uh, had, a, had an absolute blast, came back from that and thought, all right, what do I do now? Do I go to the full-time army, uh, do that for a career? Or at, at that point, when we'd been over in the Sollies, we'd worked with the Australian High Commission over there and as part of the regional assistance mission, had this whole-of-government approach. And that was when I started to learn that there's a lot more to international relations and the other nations that we were working with, the Papua New Guineans, the Fijians, the Tongans, etc. You're going, all right, let's park the uniform life. And I had a good run finished my uni degree and then joined foreign affairs and trade and spent the next 10 years as a diplomat working. Uh, I did, my, did a couple of years in Canberra to kind of learn the ropes and then went across to Pakistan at the Australian High Commission there for nearly three and a half odd years. And that was from 2011 to 2015, I think I finished up there. Um, and that was at a time when the war in Afghanistan was at its peak and was really shifting as well from where the war had been in 2011 to where it was in 2015 and where it ended up when we finally evacuated Kabul uh, only a year or so ago. It was fascinating to see that from the other side of the border when where we had no Australian troops. We were trying to work with the Pakistanis and their government and apparatus to try and counter the same challenges that they've got in Afghanistan, but on the other side of the border, they've got the entire coalition and NATO task group, which was this strange parallel of two nations trying to fight the same war with completely different approaches. And it was you know, a really fascinating time to, to be there and, and get to be part of it. Let's um, let's unpack that. I mean, you've obviously talked about this a lot previously. It's mentioned in your book a little bit. Let's unpack a, a couple of those things. Um, so you glossed over the the Solomon's trip, and I think you said you were the leader of that group. So, so does that mean you're an officer in in the army? Yep. So I was, how, a, I was a lieutenant back then. So how does um, I've been I don't know whether you've listened to the, any other interviews, but I interviewed uh, the the commodore of the Navy submarine fleet, uh, Peter Scott, um, and he talked okay. about. The, the pathway into officer school. So how, how do you end up being at university, um, having a great time on the weekend in the green uh, uniform, yep. you said? Um, how do you yep. end up in officer school? Does that happen in Army Reserves or does it happen when you go full-time? Yeah, no, it happened through the Reserves. And, I mean, I didn't know... I, I'd, let, I'd read a lot of books about the Army and watched Band of Brothers and those sorts of things. So I loosely knew the difference between officers and soldiers, but it's... Largely, you go into recruiting, you do the aptitude test, and I was, because I was studying a university de- degree, they're like, well, you'll, you'll be an officer, and you go, okay, sure, and um, yeah, you, you do some testing, and I quite enjoyed that side of the officer selection boards and, the, and then the officer training itself. I really, really loved it and loved every second of it. It certainly pushes you to your limits, um, but in a really good way, and people ask now, they go, when did you get good at public speaking, or... How did you get so confident walking up uh, in front of a crowd or in front of a, a boardroom or a classroom or whatever and, and presenting your story or, or telling it? And you go, geez, the Royal Military College done true. It was just part of it. You had to get up and, and sell your plan or present your ideas or, you know, you'd be sitting around waiting for a class to begin and the, the directing staff, they might just walk in and just be like, right, staff, get it and off. Can you just give us a five-minute talk about something? And you just have to stand up and, and off you go and then they'd throw it to the next person and say, right, you take over, you know, stand up, sell your story. And 
and they just hammer you with presentation skills. They're like, no, do better, not convincing, fix your posture, fix your delivery. They'd stand at the back of the room kind of go, no, can't hear, can't hear, can't hear, can't hear. And and, and some of these little things were just, and and I'm in my young, early 20s there learning that stuff, and it just, you soak it all in, take it on board. They, the the college and the, the army and ADF more broadly have a really good feedback cycle where they'll just give you direct and honest feedback straight away around your performance and and you have to do better the next time and the very few people will ever kind of fail officer training or any of those sort of really selective processes um if they keep trying if they keep trying to take on feedback and and improve it's only when you become a trainee or a staff cadet or an officer cadet or candidate or whatever that starts to be resistant to feedback that you'd start to have problems but as, as much as you might fail a scenario or a situation and they go right um okay what you didn't do there was you didn't listen to this or you didn't quite consider these other elements or these other weapon systems that you probably could have done or you you didn't deliver this properly and you go okay all right well i'll um you know i'll work that in next time and if you improve it the next time they'll just go great yep no worries you passed it the second time or third time and, and you keep going and keep trying and i think that was something that probably instilled in me a uh, an ethos of like, well, keep trying, keep learning, keep going, and, and whatever happens, you don't quit you, until you're told, other like until you're told you failed and you're out. Yeah. You, you never quit. You just keep going, keep learning, and there'll always be something to improve on, and and taking the feedback too, and and that can be harder in leadership positions um, where you don't say have directing staff or an instructor to tell you exactly what you've done wrong, but using your own feedback systems then through your deputies or your operations team or, or anyone in, in your team or around it to take that feedback from them and, and go, oh, okay, how do you think we could have done that better? And, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And, yep, all right, I can I can work on that. Or, yeah, trying to understand even where they're coming from of what's their background and, and does their opinion, you know, all opinions matter, but some opinions can matter more than others when yeah. you're getting feedback from someone here that, that really has a good approach to this or, or a very specific element of it and, and that might be yeah just your presentation skills you go all right maybe that's something that this person they know nothing about military tactics but they know everything about salesmanship so maybe they're brilliant at teaching you how to deliver an orders group to a, a group of soldiers you're um no, waffled you're, on there a bit sorry no no i please don't think that at all um i knew just by reading your book that what you just came out with was there, um, and I wondered where it came from. Um, so you, what you just apologise for what you, for waffling on. But I think what you just gave, if any, if anyone listening to this podcast just listens to that, um, you've just helped hundreds of people um, uh, by by. How does that like? Don't I think you summarise that? Take take the feedback. Um, always keep trying. And I think you, um, if I can summarise it, it, it's not over until you say it's over, unless someone says you absolutely failed. Uh, so you, oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's so many great quotes. I think um, it's a big part of the, the Navy SEAL ethos and comes out in movies like Lone Survivor and that, where it's just a case of like, you're still in the fight. If you're still breathing, you're still, you're still in the fight. Just keep going. And, and that particular operation that the alone survivors based on and, and Marcus Luthrell, Luthrell, however you say his name, um, that story is sort of something that you look at and go, yeah, those guys uh, and girls, they just have that ethos of you want to be a Navy SEAL, you just don't quit, you just keep going. And I just finished reading Dr. Dan Pronk's book, um, The Combat Doctor, and that's another one of just, I think that's one of the best 
stories I've read about SAS selection that I feel gives you a pretty good understanding of what's going on inside someone's head as you go through all those different scenarios and the way he tells it of just like, well, until they fail me, I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to keep going. And even in the process, he fails a couple of serials. You know, doesn't quite meet the time on one of the, the, the marches or t- fitness tests. And he's like, damn it, I failed. But he's like, well, I haven't really said much about the retest, so I'll just, you know, just keep going. Whereas other other people on his course kind of quit. And he's like, well, unless you're injured or they tell, they kick you off, like, what are you quitting for? You you, you signed up to to do this, and you keep going, and, and you get to the end, and they stay, they say yay or nay, and and you can hang your hat on, well, I finished. And if they didn't want me, they didn't want me. Good stuff, David. Um... And this is entirely up to you. Uh, We've all been, all of us can imagine some of the scenarios that you would have been put through at the Royal Military College of Duntroon. And you kind of hinted at it. Um, You you failed a couple of times. Do you want to give an example of, um, if you can remember, somewhere where you, you really stuffed up, but they, but, but the people training you gave you the grace to improve? Yeah, the, the best example I have, and it still pisses me off to this day, and this was just classic part like army. So you do these things called tactical exercises without troops, where just as, as infantry commanders or whatever, platoon, company, battalion, brigade, you can do them, and you just do this exercise where all you've got to do is go around and cite the positions and come up with the tactical plan. I think on this occasion it was a, a platoon defensive position. So you, you're on a hill, you've got to hold that hill from the Missourian hordes who are going to, they've invaded Australia and they're going to try and take hill 402 or wherever it is north of Canberra and the approaches you know, through through the Majura range. And you go, okay, great, let's, let's just design my position and there's two elements to your chute is that you've got the actual position that you've got to put your machine guns here and your your barbed wire there and your your your, system, your weapon systems and your defensive fire support positions and your alternate fire support and you, you cite them all and you, you put little flags around and everyone's putting their flags out and there'll always be an area where there's a good amount of flags and you go oh it's probably a pretty safe bet that's a good machine gun spot so i'll put a i'll put a little machine gun flag there and, and everyone puts their flags around and and the other part of it is you've got to do all the paperwork. So you've got to write this analysis of enemy, the most dangerous course of action, most likely course of action, how you're going to target the enemy's vulnerabilities, which is all part of this military appreciation process. And and it's got equal weight in the marking of half, you know, 50 points to the actual where you've put machine guns and cited your positions and then 50 points to your paperwork. And if you get less than 50%, so if you get less than 25 in each of those components, you automatically fail. So you can either paperwork fail or you can tactical tactical fail. And I got my, you know, you hand it all in and everything, and I got, uh, and I failed. I looked at it, I'm like, how did I fail that? Because I'd gotten 49 out of 50 for the tactical placement. And I'm like, so I've absolutely nailed it in terms of bar one point. I've nailed actually citing the defensive position and the plan and, you know, all of these different things, but I only got 24 out of 50 for the paperwork, but it's an automatic fail. I'm like, how on earth is that a fail? And they're like, oh, you've just, the way I'd written up the the process of how I'd gotten to my solution wasn't right. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like the solution <laughs> that I came up with was tactically 49 out of 50. So are we not here to, you know, defend against the Missourian invaders with a tactically sound plan or are we here to have a good paperwork system 
of how I hey, came up with my plan. And the instructor's like, well, don't argue. You don't fight the green. That's the process. Um, you 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 have to redo this. Uh, you have to redo it. And I, I've never been more vo- motivated in my life. To I had to stay. And the thing is, with often when you fail that stuff, it's an out of your own time to redo it. So I had to stay up till, you know, three or four a.m. just frantically redoing the paperwork side of this plan. And I couldn't have fit more words on that page and this is all pre-computer as well so it's all handwritten yeah um and then you just you know you hand it back in you get a couple of hours sleep you hand it back in the next day they mark it and you know sure enough it's kind of 45 out of 50 for the new paperwork phase and it just goes yep cool no you've now passed that scenario off you go and you just have to move on you're now back at a back at class at 7 30 or 8 o'clock or whatever the next morning you've you've now passed your scenario but i couldn't i just remember that one it's just been this oh that and they, they have those sorts of little rules and they use it as a way of going, oh, this will, this will test him. Let's give him 24 yeah. and see how he responds. Uh, I like that. Um, so it's maybe a test of whether you would fight the grain uh, uh, so, yeah. and, and give up. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. very good. Um, the other thing that you mentioned in that intro, and we're not up to where you, you go to Antarctica or anything yet, um, you talked about... Uh, we working in the Department for Foreign Affairs. Is that who you're working for? So is that DFAT? Yep. Is that yep, correct? So Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Is that what they're called? Yep. So how does um, how does a lieutenant in the army make the jump? Because the, 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 this is what amazes me in everyone's story, like yourself. Most people have have this high level job of where their reputation is quite high esteem, like a lieutenant in the army is pretty, pretty up there, um, and you decide to leave and go to a government job um, where you don't know probably really where that's going to go. Um, yep. How does that happen, and, then, and what do you have to do to become, I think you called it a, a diplomat in Pakistan? Yeah. Uh, well, I can assure you that a, a lieutenant in the army is not high up. You're high up in your platoon, like you're leading that, but in the officer ranks and the broader army, you're, you're pretty much at the bottom. Um, so, but it's... it's it's one of those jobs that's quite enviable. Like, I don't think there's a better job in the officer ranks than being an infantry platoon commander on operations. It's about as good as it gets. It's downhill staff jobs and training postings and, and other stuff uh, for the rest of your career besides a few moments where you'll get to have company or, or unit command. But anyway, I digress. Um, and it was a pretty straightforward one. I went back to uni and finished off. I finished off an arts degree in the end with a major in history and politics within a very strong international relations flavour. So I think I'd, I'd written a lot of stuff on Australia's international, like history of international relations uh, through like in, in a bit of military history in there as well in terms of Australia's involvement in South Vietnam and what that meant around the ANZUS Treaty and some of those elements. So that was a big focus of my university studies, which then translated pretty well to get into to foreign affairs and trade. And I kind of lucked in at the time they didn't have a lot of people in their Pacific Islands branch and, and division that had really spent a lot of time in the Pacific Islands. So I was applying for a job in there, had my Bachelor of Arts degree, had a bit of time in the Solomon Islands in uniform and, and easily you know walked into to foreign affairs and trade. And then once you're in, I spent a bit of time you know, in the Pacific Islands desk and then you move around and you go, okay, let's, let's go. Um, originally, I'd wanted to go into Afghanistan as one of the uh dfat embeds there with the australian task force and then what's a what's an embed 
Yeah, so th- as part of the, the task group over there, which I think was sort of being reinvigorated at the time, this is around 2008 or nine, or maybe a few years after that, um, you've got all your uniformed troops, but then you, you'll have a number of people from AusAid, as it was then before it had merged with Foreign Affairs and Trade, a number of people who they're associated to the embassy, but they're actually embedded with the task group, which is what I ended up doing years later in Iraq. So you're technically accredited to the Australian embassy in the capital, but you're all embedded with the the task group or the coalition units out there as that liaison between the task group commanders and the Australian embassy and the Australian government. And I think at, maybe not around then, but later on, there was a big Australian federal police contingent in Afghanistan as well, training and advising and assisting Afghan national police. So it's never just about you know, the Army or the Navy or the Air Force or even just what's Australia doing. You know, every, every deployment I ever did was alongside at least Kiwis. Um, and then as part of that ANZAC battle group or task group, you're going to then be working closely with British, Canadians and Americans uh, or, you know, New Guineans and, and Tongans or whatever in the Pacific Islands. And then Afghanistan, you're obviously working with the Afghans, but then all these other partner nations. you got French, you got Spanish, you got everyone and it has this whole thing and that's where foreign affairs and trade will have the overarching whole of government requirement to kind of grip that all together and report back to you know the foreign minister and the prime minister on how's this fitting into australia's overall policy in afghanistan pakistan iraq wherever it is and it's i mean it gets pretty complicated of how all those reporting streams work but you for one compared to being an infantry lieutenant being a diplomat or a member of the embassy or whatever, you actually have a pretty good picture of what the hell's going on across the entire space. And whether or not you can do much about it is the other problem, but you, you do have at least a full picture of what's Australia doing in this country. So you, you really, um, I mean, I loved your book, but uh, I'm, I'm loving this so much as well because you're, you're painting... You're painting who you are and how, like, when you start, you're like, you just rattle all that off because you've lived it and it's normal for you, but it's not normal for the rest of us. Um, so you're, um, you're in that, uh, embedded in that task force group as a, associated with the embassy, Australian embassy, but you're working with all those different nationalities for understanding customs, understanding different um, backgrounds, um, can you want to talk about that? You know, some some examples about you're in the room with different people and how you get to know each other and how, and how you achieve an outcome. I mean, you, generally speaking, you're all there to achieve the same thing. And I think that was the fascinating thing, like working in Pakistan, where we had a really good relationship with the, the Americans and the British embassies there, as well as, you know, the French, the Spanish, uh, the Italians, the Turks, you know, all the different embassies that, rep, that uh, were fighting the war in Afghanistan as part of the NATO coalition there, we were the, the, the closer unit um, and had a lot of joint, jointly funded projects and programs helping Pakistan. But at the end of the day, what we're there to do was help Pakistan you know, deal with the insurgency and deal with the, the terrorism issues that, that were, were coming out of Afghanistan or closely associated. That was really our main focus, or my focus, of the, the team I was working in. And you're there going, well, that's what the, the, the host government want. That's what we're here to do. We're here to offer expertise. We're here to, uh, you know, develop training or, or legal procedures or legislation with them. And so you'd have a lot of these different joint... Um, 
programs with the other nations are often funded through the UN. So yes, it would have Australian funding at the back of it, but that would go through, say, UNODC or Office of Drugs and Crime um, or UN United Nations High Commission for Refugees, for instance. So you, you're funding that through the United Nations. The United Nations that then joins up with, say, the Turkish, the French, the Spanish, and then so you've got a joint working committee then of those nations who are funding a project to. You know, we're working on like prison reform in Pakistan uh, at one point, and you kind of, you just, you, you know, it can get pretty complicated and 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 everything. But you go, okay, how can we you know, help advise them here, or, or get some experts in from from Australia or the UK or other nations? And so you're trying to then understand a legal system. And Pakistan's a fascinating country in terms of it, it's, it, you know, it's a relatively young country as a nation state, but it has a huge history from you know the subcontinent and then you've got the islamic sharia law and everything thrown on top of these british like what was essentially a british style constitution and how you're trying to then work with that and you've got all these different nations with their own opinions and you're trying to just do the best thing for the the people on the ground and, and in their system and yeah I, I was in my late 20s uh yeah i was pretty fast and furious in terms of the the pace of the work over there and the 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 security environment too. Every other week there'd be protests or, or suicide bombings or attacks or something that would kind of mean that half the city got locked down. And that was probably my first experience of lockdowns. I remember when lockdowns came to Australia with COVID that uh, living in a place like Pakistan, it was actually pretty common to be told, no one's, don't come to work today. There's massive riots on the street or there's an expected attack downtown. Uh, everyone's working from home. And that was something that... that we got pretty used to back then and we'd have little lockdown parties where you, people that lived in your section of the, of the, the neighbourhood, they could come around, you'd have a little lockdown party and, and off you'd go. So, yeah. do, you, do you want to give me, um, uh, you've kind of hinted at it there, but what would a normal day look like for David Knopf, the, the embedded embassy worker um, in Pakistan? Um, you know, where, where, where were you living what time of the day yeah. do you start? How do you get to work? How long are you at work? And when do you come home? Yeah, so, I mean, no typical day. I was there for, you know, three and a half odd years. There's no typical day. But if you had to kind of summarise a, a a version of, of a typical day, I was living in a suburb called F6, uh, which is, you know, kind of one of the better better end of town, um, but still about a 20-minute drive from the diplomatic enclave where all the embassies were. So wake up at 6 o'clock quick workout in my, my nicely equipped home gym. I had a dog, so I played with the dog for a little bit while I eat breakfast. Read the three or four different local Pakistani papers that would be on my, my table. So this is pre-iPad kind of era, all very much print edition newspapers. So I think I'd read like the International New York Times, the, the local uh, Pakistani papers as well, have a look at them. Trying to get a sense of what's happened overnight, what's the Prime Minister said, what's happened. Uh, there's always something that's happened overnight in Pakistan, so you, you really woke up to a slow news day to see what's going to be the, the news of the day before you get into work. At work from sort of 8 o'clock uh, around, we'd, we'd have the all the Australian-based staff would either get together formally or informally in the morning to again talk about, OK, what's the... What's the High Commissioner's program today? Where's he going? What's he doing? Uh, and then what am I doing? Or what's my team doing? And you'd go from there, you, you might go out to a meeting with uh, different politicians, either in government or uh, opposition party members, or 
Um, again, yeah, we might go out to a meeting with the United Nations, one of the UN agencies or one of the Pakistani government departments to sort of work through either a, an upcoming training program or an upcoming exchange or visit. Uh, you do a lot of work around planning visits when you're working at an embassy. So every once or twice a year, you'd have a very high-level visit, talking sort of prime minister or foreign mm. minister or chief of defence used to visit quite a lot. And then you've got any number of other... Um, head honchos from defence or government and, and often we'd have a lot of visitors come across from Afghanistan or out of through Dubai, they'd come out of Afghanistan into Dubai and then they'd want to come and chat to the Pakistani uh, Defence Force or Defence Ministry about the strategies in Afghanistan and tie that together and you'd sit, you'd organise a lot of those meetings you'd sit in those meetings and as the embassy staff you then have to follow them up so the it's all great for the Chief of Defence Force to come in and go, oh, we're going to do more kind of cooperation on this, we're going to give you this equipment and we're going to train you on this stuff and we want to do this. And then he flies back to Australia and it's done, it's left to the embassy staff to kind of pull that together and follow it up. So we do that and then, so you, you finish work, work at probably six o'clock, but then you'd go, uh, if it was Wednesday or Friday, we had we played touch rugby at the British uh, British Embassy after work, which is always always fun. But then after that, you, so you go play rugby and often you then go out for a, some sort of dinner. And that dinner's going to have classic as long as that dinner circa 2011. You've got to have uh, one or two Australians, someone from the British High Commission, possibly an American, but we didn't always... Sometimes the Americans weren't really allowed out after hours or if they did, they'd have funny things. So that you, Americans probably were a bit of a thing. So you'd, you'd have some from the French embassy, you'd have a couple of Pakistani journalists, you'd probably have someone from BBC World News or someone that's a journalist that's visiting and, and you're sitting there all chatting around what's what's the future of Pakistan, what's the future of Afghanistan and, you know, how good's this wine and, <laughs> you know, what are we... What are we and, you, yeah, because you, you couldn't... You couldn't really drink in public over there, so often you'd have your wine decanted into sports drink bottles or you'd put... Um, cloths or something over your over your your, your carafe of wine and, and most of the international restaurants there in in Pakistan were fine with Westerners uh, having the odd sneaky wine, but or, or you'd you'd stay at home and host dinner parties. So it had this kind of old old school 1950s style vibe where you're hosting a lot of dinner parties because going out to restaurants wasn't always the wisest thing to do uh, in a town like that. Yeah. So big days, like you just oh. Epic Every days, day. and, you know, and th- yeah, and then you, you know you're in bed by midnight or, or, or sort of one o'clock, and then you're up again at six a.m. the next day to just do the same thing, and that that's seven days a week, uh, pretty much all year round, except for Ramadan's probably the quietest time of the year, which is actually great. The whole country sort of slows down, similar to Christmas time in Australia, and mm. yeah, but. Every day was was fascinating. I learned so much about international relations and and politics from my time there, and it was a great first posting, I think, in, in so many ways, because if I'd gone, as, as others do, or people say, oh, why didn't you go on a posting to, say, Paris or, or Tokyo? And you go, well, not that those locations aren't great, and I'm sure, you know, diplomatically they're fascinating, but we get along with those nations. It was so much more fascinating to work in a country like Pakistan as a junior diplomat. You learn so much more when... Yeah, we did get along really well with the Pakistanis, but there was certainly not, uh, you know, not our healthiest and easiest relationship. And there were so many different things at play there, and it was such a focal point of world history to be, you know, you know involved in that that conflict at the, that location. Yeah. That you go, oh, this is everything you want, rather yeah. than 
you know, posting to Paris, yeah, sure, it's lovely, but, you know. You're an amazing guy, David. Um, uh, and for me personally, uh, like, uh, I'm interviewing you as David Knopf, but you're also the author of this wonderful book, 537 Days of Winter. And I think you've just, um, in the first half hour of this interview, you've just described how to, because you're a pretty young man, um, and when, when, you, when, you, when you did this leadership um, of this expedition, you were about 32 or something, weren't you, or 33? So I kind of stopped counting over there. I think I'm 37 now, so yeah, 33, 34, something like that when yeah. I started that Antarctic trip, yeah. Yeah, so it's quite, and in the book you're quite um, self-depreciating about have I got the skills to lead this group, but um, just hearing you, um, and I really thank you for being so honest, uh, you've spent from 22 to at least 32 uh, playing first grade in leadership roles, challenging yourself as much as you can in the most challenging of environments, really. So um, it kind of gives me a picture. Yeah. And I think it gives the listeners a picture of, well, this guy's got some serious skills in how to get on with people, uh, which, which is... So let's, um, let's kind of take it now. Um, like you've shown us your de- Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade experience. What comes next? Is, is, it, is it the expeditions then, or how, how does that happen? Yeah, so after posting to Pakistan, I went and lived in Turkey with my ex-girlfriend for a bit while she worked with the United Nations over there, so I had a bit of time off full-time work, did some freelance things, and then I went into Iraq in an embedded role with the Australian task group over there, but that was not a stopgap, but that was I wanted to do something like that. That was a one-year gig. It was fascinating. It was really interesting, but it wasn't probably as full-on as the role in Pakistan because in a lot of ways this is 2016 now where where the Australian task group as part of the coalition you're encountering ISIS but we were one step removed from the front lines of that conflict for a lot of reasons Australia and the other coalition partners we didn't want to get directly involved so we were quite protected we stayed inside the wire most of the time and then that didn't have the the kind of fast-paced risk that we we saw in Pakistan uh, in terms of getting it done. So I did that for a year, and it was during that time that I I decided, okay, I'm going to join the Antarctic program. It was not a huge step away from foreign affairs and trade. Now, the Antarctic, the Australian Antarctic Division is part of the Department of Climate Change, uh, Agriculture and Environment, which has just recently changed. I'm still getting my head around that new acronym. But anyway, it's always Department of Environment somewhere. Yeah. Um, but has a good relationship with foreign affairs and trade. There's plenty of ex-diplomats and ex-army officers and ex-navy and air force officers working in the Australian Antarctic Division and people from border force and policing. And there's, there's a lot of ex-government types that then end up in the Antarctic program. So I knew enough about it. I knew a few people that had worked there. The old My high commissioner uh, in Pakistan had worked at the Australian Antarctic Division himself, Peter Haywood. And so knew about it and thought, all right, I'll come back to Australia. I spent a couple of years at the DFAT state office in Melbourne, sort of reconnecting and getting the resume and everything lined up to join the Antarctic program. And you talk about selection processes. So, um, well, you asked me earlier about the army officer yeah, selection. Yeah. The selection process for Antarctic station leaders was on a different level and probably the most competitive room I've ever sat in. And I think if they run a one, it might be slightly different now after COVID and they've changed the recruiting pipeline a little bit. But when I did that selection course in 
2000 and sort of 18, I think it was one week you turn up on a bus full of it was about 20 or so candidates you get dumped at a scout camp in the, the Tasmanian hills and you you just work not not 24 hours a day your brain runs 24 hours a day as you just go through team scenarios and group assessments day after day after day until it gets to the, the end of the week and they just cut half the group and say yeah you know, yep, thank you, but uh, but no thanks. Uh, you're welcome to reapply. And then they, they whittle it down with a few more interviews. And then finally, at the end of it, they pick uh, a few station leaders for the, the next couple of years. And it's I remember being really intimidated by that group. I was one of the... I think I was the youngest, um, or there was someone of a very similar age to me in our, our lower 30s. The rest of the group were in their 40s and 50s. They were captains of industry. There was ex-professional sports players you've got departmental heads of different government agencies people that are like oh, i'm the vice chancellor of, univer- of the university and all this sort of stuff and i'm sitting there going like i'm just a public servant you know i've got no chance against these people um but there was a few little scenarios in there that i felt played to my strength and they the way that selection process worked meant that you you had an opportunity to shine but you'd also have an opportunity to be tested in scenarios that weren't necessarily your bread and butter, but they needed someone and they need station leaders that can perform in all of those different uh, scenarios, not just, hey, can you you run a a search and rescue operation or can you coordinate a a first aid incident and and evacuation? You go, oh, yeah, okay. So obviously I had had a good amount of experience with that side of things, but they're like, oh, can you... um, Dave, can you just you know grab this laptop and we need you to write. This is a, this isn't a scenario, but it's the sort of thing they give you. And go, okay, we just need you to rewrite the um, workplace health and safety documentation around this particular scenario that just happened. So can you take this report, take this recommendation, and then summarise it into a one-page document and present it to the you know the, the chair of the Antarctic Science Foundation or the Antarctic Division after lunch and. What I loved about these training scenarios is it's not a role play that comes in. You're actually presenting it to the you know, the, the chair of the Antarctic yeah. Science Committee or something afterwards, yeah. and, and you go, great. And then you know the director of the Antarctic Program turns up for dinner one night and you've all got to chat to them about the future of Australia's role in Antarctica and, and all these, these things, and you're working 24 hours a day. Now, kind of what I was chatting about before, it, for a former diplomat, a lot of that was pretty straightforward. Yes, yeah. That, that, that thing, so... I felt comfortable, but I still finished that week not not really thinking that I'd, I'd get offered a job um, yeah. until they called me sort of six months later and and, uh, and offered me a job. Wow, well, yeah, six months. You didn't find out for six months. I think, I, I can't remember the exact timelines. It might have been a little bit sooner that I got told, hey, you've, you've made it through the process. Yeah. Um, and then it comes down to, do we have a spot for you in the next year or so? So I think out of that intake those of us that got through almost everyone ended up being a station leader at some point in that three in the three years subsequent to it and they um like i said they've changed the processes now they only used to run that selection course every kind of two years and then recruit to a pool i don't quite know how they do it now but if you're interested jobs antarctic.au yeah. and uh and head on head on to that website that's real good antarctic expeditions start with the Australian program so how did you um, I think I think it's in the book how did you um, like all your experiences in in hot places essentially <laughs> really hot uh, hot sandy places how did yep. you um, 
how did you prepare yourself for the cold, the, like, the extremes? Yeah, the, the human body adapts because I realised that, that in Iraq we'd be driving around in you know, plus 50 degrees, very dry heat, but plus 50 degrees. You're wearing body armour, helmets, fireproof kind of thermal sort of shirts and stuff that's just not designed to keep you cold at all. And you're, you're just sweating sweating yourself to silly and try you can't drink enough water but but your, your body adjusts and then by the end of your year in iraq and it, it does get pretty cold in the winter time in iraq and, and even afghanistan and, and pakistan and that places places that people always consider hot and dusty because in the movies it's always hot and dusty with a sunset over you know islamabad with call to prayer playing and kind of pigeons flying off into the sunset but in the middle of winter places like islamabad or kabul and that they're freezing bloody cold so it's not always warm but Long story short, at the flip side of that in Antarctica, yeah, I've been down to kind of minus 50 when you count wind chill and everything, and you go, that's a 100-degree swing of what you've been able to yeah. operate in. Yeah. And, but the saying of, you know, there's no such thing as bad conditions, just bad equipment. So if you've got the right clothing and equipment, uh, or if you know, in places like Iraq, you're wearing completely inappropriate clothing and equipment that'll keep you safe but not cold, um, you, your body will adapt. And I'd... I don't know, I'd, I'd grown up, we'd gone to the snow a lot as, as kids. My dad, you know, he was half German, so he'd, always, he'd grown up in the, the Alps and had uh, taught, taught us to ski from a young age. So it's been a bit of time in the snow and I'd always enjoyed it. And I had been to Antarctica with a group of mates once on a mountaineering expedition over to the Antarctic Peninsula. So I'd, I'd been, been down there, I'd been cold and seen what it was like and, and knew that, all right, this is something I want to get into and get back to. Good stuff. So, look, do you want to take us? Um, do you want us to take us to you? Uh, you're you're given the nod, and you're the the Antarctic station leader, and you're on your way. Do you want to? Um, I think the book goes there a little bit, but you just hinted at it. Um, you felt like a. You know, I don't think you use him. You felt very doubtful of your abilities to get through the selection process. So now that you're on, now that you've been given the nod and maybe you're on your way um, yep. to lead this group of people, what's really going on in your head? Do you feel confident, or do you feel like so many leaders I talk to, and what, you know we've heard your story. So you're, um, it's obvious to anyone listening you've got the skills, but sometimes our worst enemies yep. our own head. Um, yep. What's going on in your head about am I good enough to do this? Yeah, I, I mean, you, I, I do back myself in. So maybe sometimes I can come across as um, unsure with some of the things I might have written or said. But I, most people that do know me, they'd say that, yeah, never uh, never shy and certainly humble is probably not a word people use to describe me <laughs> often. So, um, but, but having said that, when I started as this, so I, was, I got the phone call and said, hey, do you want to be the station leader at Davis Station for one year? Come down to Hobart um, in around August, September 2019, and then we were going to we were getting on the, the Aurora Australis team of 100 or so scientists for that summer. We, we set sail in late October, and from the time I landed in Hobart until I got on that ship, it was the steepest learning curve I've ever been involved in, and the most challenging exercise in herding cats you've ever seen because I had my wintering team. So there was a team of 24 of us that were going to stay for all of 2020, and we knew that. Um, but on top of that, you had this team of scientists who were only going to be there for that first summer. 
And some of them, they a, a weren't even in Hobart yet, and they wouldn't turn up until either a couple of days before the ship left, or they would fly down through Casey Station and the Wilkins Aerodrome, and they're coming across. So you don't even meet these people. You see their name on a list, and you see their projects, and you see that okay, you know, you've got Alan's got this project, and he's got this amount of helicopter hours, and this many bunks, and this many human days on station billeted for, etc. And, and their priority blah in the program, and you go okay, okay, you do all this and. And I had, and the team around me, so a really good operations coordinator, a great senior field training officer who manages all the field risk. Um, the head of aviation was really experienced. So I had this great team that was at my table, but who all had you know, years more Antarctic experience than me. And that was quite intimidating to be like, geez, I don't know. Like, I have no experience with the Australian Antarctic program other than you know, a few little things and these guys have, and girls have been down there multiple times, multiple stations. They've seen it. They've done it. They've seen the best and worst of the program. And I talk about them a lot in the book of how heavily I relied on them and that my job then becomes, okay, I just need to make sure that everyone's communicating. I can work with people. I can get the best out of them. I can manage their expectations when it's not going to go to plan. And, and certainly the way the Antarctic stations run in the summertime and winter and this is not just the Australian program and all of the national programs, they're probably a bit oversubscribed from all the different universities and all different projects that want to get their work done in that busy summertime with the, the, the favourable weather conditions. It, it's always a bit ambitious for what can actually be achieved. So you're constantly having to work with different teams and say, look, we can't get you to the location you want to go to this week or, or today. What else have you got? And we can we can get you here, and you, you try to compromise to make sure that they can get the most out of their time in Antarctica. Their expectations can get met. Their science can still get done, and you can still have a successful season, even though you'll never achieve 100% total completion of every science project. And it's just not designed like that. And that's a a different operating environment than the average workplace. But again, for myself, was probably similar to the way it works in a, in a war zone or at an embassy in a war yes, zone yeah. in that you you never really achieve anything and if you look at the the war to to get political for a second you look at the war in afghanistan we did you know, we didn't we certainly didn't win at the end so you go well you do have to get used to the fact to just keep working hard and keep going and if it, if you win you win if you don't well you learn something along the way all right um so you're on your it's a pretty good account. I think uh, you, you take me where you want to take me, but um, I seem to remember on the boat or in the preparation to go there, you, you know you're the leader, you, you've got your doubts, have, have, I, have I got the skills to do it? Do you, um, I think I seem to remember you, you reach out to other leaders. Yes. So we had, I, I knew the other station leaders going in. So they were, of course, going to different stations, you know, hundreds of kilometres away from you. So you don't actually really get a chance to see them once you're down there. But that support network of the other station leaders who, some of whom had much more experience. So I talk a bit about Ali. She was the station leader over at Casey when I was there and she'd done multiple years. She'd been a geologist before that as well. So she knew the program really well. And I lent on her, as did the other junior station leaders, a lot to just ask her, like, the dumb station leader questions. Mm -hmm. um, but also my boss, who'd been a station leader, he was back in Kingston, just out of Hobart, the, where the Antarctic Division's based. He'd been a station leader, and you could ask him a lot of those questions as well, of like, oh, 
how does this work? What happens here? And then if it wasn't a question that either of them could answer or you felt like you didn't know how to, you didn't know how to tell your boss something, calling up others that had sat in the, the station leader chairs years before, often out of the blue, you've never met them, you've never spoken to them, you just email them or, or phone, give them a phone call and say, hey, it's Dave, I'm the current station leader at Davis, I've got a funny question. They'd be like, oh, tell us all about it. Yeah. What do you got? And, and, they, and often it was because I'd, I'd read uh, all the old station logs. So every winter in, a, in an Antarctic station, it has a similar kind of cycle of the, the way the sea ice regrows and the penguins go out and the seals go out to sea and then they all start to come back as the, the seasons change and you really only have summer and winter you don't have a lot of fringe season the light light switch kind of changes uh in around april and then in around october the switch gets flicked back to summer and, and that's it but so you're reading these old logs and you'd see something you're like oh you know station leader blah on this particular day in 1998 this happened and you go oh that's kind of funny. That's that's that hasn't happened since you know, 1998. I'll find that person to email them, and 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 they'd always get back to me and be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that. That was great." And oh, that's interesting. That's happened again, or that happens every year. And some of the the social problems of people just you know doing silly things or getting a bit sick of it or causing trouble. It just became like as frustrating as it was. It, you just knew it was normal and you knew you only knew that from speaking to others that had sat in your chair and i know i've spoken to a number of other expeditions i actually had had dinner last night with one of the members of my team from that the particular winter the book's written about and we were talking about the processes in modern workplaces with your employee assistance systems of okay uh, you're having trouble in the workplace you'll have your your Representatives, you've got you know, you've obviously got your boss and your peers, but then you'll have a workplace welfare officer or someone, and then you'll generally most workplaces now have got an external provider that they've contracted, or they'll say, hey, just you know, our preferred partner is is giving you know, call beyond blue and, and speak to someone. But given the context around what was happening at an Antarctic station, from what we've all come up with, the best support network you could ever have was calling former expeditioners, and that was for myself. To, to the builders, to the plumbers, to the the Bureau of Meteorology team or whoever, if you polled every Antarctic expedition and said, hey, who did you feel you could speak to or you actually helped you when you were struggling with something? And the, the number one response, I think, would be someone that had sat in my chair before and had, had a similar incident rather than speaking to an external provider. Yeah. Now, not that those external providers aren't great, yeah. don't have their place. It's, it's an interesting nuance that I think a lot of other workplaces would have the same thing and, and arguably places like defence or policing and um, yeah. paramedics and whatnot are exactly the same. It's so hard to explain the context of what you're dealing with to someone that doesn't understand it and you have to just speak to an expert that's, that's yes. sat in your chair and, I think, and I think what you're going through. Some people, some organisations call it lived experience people, people with a lived experience. So, um, yeah. One thing I particularly, I mean, there's so many things, uh, and I don't want to, you know, I want to kind of leave the listeners with read the book because it's, because it's, yeah, because it's, um, rather than us talk about all of it in this uh, interview, um, I just want to give them a taste. But one of the things I loved in your book was um, on station, you needed a, a two, a second in charge, someone that you really leaned on. And I think if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, the person you selected was the cook. Is that Correct. right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
and I love, and I quite, I, I kind of, um, I get this myself. Like, it doesn't have to be the most senior person in the room to be your support person. Um, can you just, uh, can you just talk us through how that happened and why, and and and, and the um, and the validity of that that selection as it went on. Yeah, so that was the best decision I ever made. And that, I think, led to the the overall success of the year was getting that decision right. So I knew it was important before I made it, so I certainly didn't make it quickly. But when I first got the team and you saw the list of who's in my team and I knew I had very little experience. It was going to be my first time wintering and first time a station leader. So straight away, I felt my deputy station leader should be the opposite of that. Who's my most experienced person? But that's not always the best option. That you'd, you'd want someone that's going to be a experienced, but be complementary. And in so many ways, uh, Rhonda is her name in the book, and she and I are quite different, very different backgrounds. She's a little bit older than me, but had done five winters, I think, at that point before with the Australian and Kiwi programs. She worked out in the mines. She knew how to run the kitchen in her sleep. She had a tireless work ethic, so she was up from sort of. 4am every morning and, and worked till about you know six or seven and then we'd keep working on even on a day she'd like she'd even come to me and say oh hey dave i need a i need a day off to go and like replant all the hydroponics in the hydro hydro hut and i'm like that's not a day off like that's <laughs> work and she's like no 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 it's a day off from the kitchen and so she just works tirelessly which you could tell from the minute you met her you're like right that's gonna work well but she also didn't want she, she wasn't ambitious in that she was never going to step on my toes of trying to be the station leader. She just was, she really wanted to represent the community side of things, which as the chef, it's the focal kind of heartbeat of an Antarctic station. And, and it's, it's the kitchen table of a family. Like it's the place where everything happens. And so having her there in the busy summertime meant that she was my eyes and ears of what's happening around the kitchen table and around the kitchen. So that was really handy. But even in the wintertime as well, Every day, everyone will, will go through the kitchen and she had a really just ingrained ability to read body language and vibe on, on different members of the team and and would help them if, if there was problems they were having where they didn't want to speak to me or speak to their other boss or anyone, she'd quietly work with them and, and deal with that and, and either let me know or not let me know and there'd be things where I'd go, hey, I, I, know, I heard this is happening, I know this is happening. Um, what's happening around that, and that would be with individuals struggling with something back home outside of our control, and you, and she was just the best sounding board to say, well, what have we got? What are we doing? Um, do do I need to step in? Do you need to step in? Do we get the doctor to help step in, or his peers or her peers around them working? And she was just all over those little community elements without ever kind of trying to fight for my job, which I don't think she actually wanted yeah and and that just worked perfectly in a deputy role and similar to i had a really good platoon sergeant back in the day when i was in the solomons uh he he'd been a you know he's a, a victorian policeman and had a really good experience as well he knew everything and, and again didn't fight to say oh, i want to you know i, I want to be the platoon commander and i think that's one of the good things with the deputy is that they compliment you they're often opposite to you and they're not a yes person they're not going to do what you say blindly they're going to fight you they're going to challenge you in terms of their opinions give you an honest answer but leave it to you to make your own mistakes in your own judgments and assessments at the end of the day because that's that's your job as the the boss god you've um explained that well leave it to you to make your own mistakes uh 
not a yes person. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really it's a really simple way to explain not a simple not not a simple choice uh, decision. So yep. thank you. That's yeah. um and that um, and Ron Ronda um features heavily all the way through the book. Um, so it, yeah, she's she's the real the real hero of the book and. And one of the, I think the first person I spoke to when I, when I was approached to write the book, um, I was in a good position that a, it was such a unique scenario of being stuck in an Antarctic station during the pandemic alone, let alone all the other things that happened during our year without spoiling the book too much. Um, so when I was approached to write it by a couple of publishers, uh, Rhonda was the first person I called and said, "Hey, um, I'm very seriously considering." writing a book about our year and if she'd vetoed it then and said no don't don't do it for there, there's a lot of personal elements to the whole story yeah. it's, it's not just my story it's the story of the 24 of us in that wintering team now all the names and and, and everything have been changed and there's yeah. a few things that are, are muddled around a bit but she knew that there was there was going to be some elements there that, that others wouldn't necessarily want in the public domain yeah yeah um so we had a chat about how I was going to frame it and, and how we talk about some of the, the different issues when it came to the book and having her support from, you know, for the whole 537 days, but also beyond that and her support to, to kind of turn it into a book and tell our story was, was really key to, to giving me the confidence then to go, right, uh, let's, let's turn this into a book and let's make this a story. And yeah, very proudly gave her one of the first, uh, actually, because she was back wintering again, to her credit, she hasn't got a physical copy of it yet, but she got one of the first PDF uh, printed manuscripts. Well, lovely, lovely. Yeah. Um, there's another thing that uh, it's just gone out of my head. So Rhonda. Oh yes. So in your um, in your kind of lead-in about how you discussed. Um, the preparation you did as you were going across in the boat, and I just want to touch on this point in the in the book because it was such a funny line. I don't know whether the chap- chapter starts with it. So you um, you talk to other station leaders about about how they dealt with s- social problems and people causing problem problems, and and you said that they it was just a normal way of doing doing business. That's just what happens when you put uh, you know twenty people or a hundred people in a in an Antarctic station. Um, the thing I loved in the book, the, the term that you said, um, every group has a Fred. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously Fred's identity is, um, is hidden. But do you, just yeah. want to, do you want to explain that? Because I, I kind of went, oh, my God, yeah, we can all relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny how everyone, uh, I get a lot of comments about Fred because everyone's worked with a Fred. And that's where that name came from. I think it was the, the name Fred. My dad used to use that as his, like, Fred Nurk was, like, his character for, you know, just stupid things. So Fred came from that. But And Fred is, isn't is based on any one person. It's based on the worst elements of everyone in the team, from myself to any anyone else. We all had our Fred moments and we all did things that you go, you look back on, you go, oh, that wasn't my best, that wasn't my best work, and we've yeah. all been there. But we've also all worked with troublemakers or people that you just can't get along with that you feel like you're trying everything you can to make a relationship work professionally or socially, and the other person is just not interested in it. And, and that's what Fred, as a character in the book, represents. And, yeah, is based on some true stories of, of, and everything that Fred does in the book is a true story. 
but it's it's not one person. Yeah. It's 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 a whole range of different moments as we all went up and down the spectrum of um, of emotions throughout that year. But it's something that during the pandemic, I think a lot of leaders and workplaces dealt with. If you've got your your member of the team that that just refuses to believe the government advice or refuses to get vaccinated or refuses to wear their mask and you've, you've so you've met Fred's or Karen's and um there's a little Karen joke at the back of the book about kind of meeting a, meeting my first Karen when I got home around masks and and regulations and things and that was something that, that people realized in times of crisis when you push to the limits having to still work with people who are difficult to work with is a is a factor and it's not all and that was something again to kind of digress a little bit, but but I think it's important is that with the book, I, I wanted it to be as accurate as possible, and everything little story that happens in there happened. Um, we changed what we had to to protect identities and protect a few elements of it, but it's accurate and it's raw and and emotional in that it's not a story of just 24 people that set out in the truest spirit of Antarctic exploration and off we went and we all came back and we're best of friends and got all everything done and, and by God, what a, what an amazing experience. Everyone was the best and brightest Australian and New Zealand men and women that could ever be sent to Antarctica and, and what a credit to the recruiting processes and the, the training and, and oh, the leadership and all that. You're like, no, it's getting hard work and chaos uh, yeah. uh, is what it was actually like and we're certainly we all keep in touch but we're closer to a family than friends in terms of some of those relationships are pretty pretty tense and there's some people that you 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 know you'd, you'd catch up with and you'd have a chat but you remember you're like geez you were a pain in the ass at times and, and that's and that's that's true that's true and, that's, true. At me and, and yeah. that's humans and that's, yeah. that was so important to make sure that the book got that right yeah to not just be Here's a version of events that I reckon I got right the whole time and I'm amazing. It's certainly not that. And I think I was pretty honest in the book about when I got it wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. the only person, yeah, it, but besides Rhonda, who's the, the, you know, the real hero of the story, was, was the only character where you just go like, well, I, I couldn't fault her. And, and no one of the team would dare. So, yeah. Do you want to, I think you've been quite honest about that, Dan. Do you want to just, I mean, you're, this, one of the purposes of this podcast is to help um, mould, inspire, assist, coach um, other leaders out there. How does David Knopf, the imperfect human, deal with difficult people? Yeah, how, how, I, take your, yeah my, my advice on that one is simple. Take your ego out of it. If it's not about you. As a leader, you'll have a persona or an image uh, in your mind of what you are and then an image and a persona in terms of your team's mind and your peers and everyone else. And you've got to take any feedback and any criticism on board and they might be right or wrong, but you've got to listen to it and take your own opinions and, and ego and just park it and go, all right, if, if Alan's got this, this opinion, I'm going to listen to it and try and incorporate it or try and unpack it to understand where's he coming from with that issue or that problem and then you can try and fix your leadership because the attack may not be personal uh it can feel personal it might be they've attacked you in a personal way because they can't articulate the professional gripe they've got with your leadership style so you just go okay that's what they've said or that's what i've heard they've said why have they said that how do i understand it how do i park 
that that's not necessarily personally directed at me. It's mm. directed at leader me. Mm. And leader me, rightly or wrongly, you're open to public opinion and public attack, a la a politician or CEO of an airline or something. Like, yeah. all of a sudden, you took that role. You're yeah. now... The target. public persona is, is, now, yeah, is now a target. Yeah. And, and, and you, you watch... Yeah, how how brutal trial by media has become, or trial by social media has become in the last couple of years against leaders and others. So you've got to just not take that seriously. Same with internet trolls or bad reviews or whatever it is. You just go, yep, yeah, cool. That's one opinion versus ten thousand sales of the book. So let's go with the nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine people that loved it versus the one person that decided that. Yeah, I read. I read a great. <laughs> I do love the, the stupid reviews. Someone wrote a review the other day saying like, "Oh, it was a, it was a two or three stars or something." And they, but they've kind of written like, "Oh, well, this book's just about being stuck in Antarctica during the pandemic." And I'm like, well, "That's exactly what it, is. it literally <laughs> says that in the top. like." They're, yeah, they're, they're, I'm like, "That's yeah, great review, mate." Like, that, well, I don't know what you were expecting. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, there was another review that sort of was about oh. This book doesn't go into the science of Antarctic exploration or Antarctic science. This just focuses on what it was like for the people who were stuck there. And I'm like, again, read the back cover or read the you know the first page before you buy the book and realise that that's exactly what this book is about. It's yeah. not a science book. Yeah. You want to read about the science, go and get a scientific journal. I mean, certainly talk about some science in the book, but I'm not a scientist. And the book is about the human experience yeah. of being, being an Antarctic station leader. Uh, during that extended season, and it's but you just go, all right, that's their opinion, and yep, good on them, great. Yeah. They've given it three stars. The I think what I love about it, and you're anyone listening to today, you'd, you'd hear it, the imperfections of human beings, um, and then the challenge of putting those human beings in that remote, the remotest of dangerous locations for five hundred and. Um, 37 days uh that's yep. that's the thing and you had to lead that because you you hold you are and you and it's obvious in the book that you held yourself so accountable for the success and the survival and the thriving or not thriving of everyone and you know, and, and anyone that reads the book will will hear that um i'm conscious of of time that how long we are I have been going for a while but it, um i want to just touch on one thing and then we'll 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 wind it up if you want um and it's yep. uh, one chapter of the book talked about a medical emergency. Uh, the window yep. was closing to get that person out because they had to be they had to be seen by a high level medical team that didn't exist there. Um, yep. And you and and you've kind of led us into this how you had the skills to do it. It wasn't obvious in the book, uh, but it wasn't as obvious to me anyway. You. Um, reached out to the Chinese and, I think, and all, all the other uh, stations down in Antarctica to make it happen. Um, so do you want to give us a brief version of that? Um, and, and it's obvious that your skills as the, the, the diplomat yeah. came, came, to the, came to the fore there. Yeah, and look, I can only take credit for a small component of that entire operation. So I had... Out of the, the team on the station, 22 of us were directly involved in supporting the medical evacuation. There was the patient and then one other chaperone that had to go out with them as a medical assistant because we couldn't send the doctor. Um, and then on top of that, the Antarctic 
program and division itself, along with huge elements of Canberra and defence and, and also and um, like uh, I'm trying to remember the, some of the acronyms, but a huge amount of people involved at the back end of it. And I actually felt quite connected to Australia when we'd felt quite isolated for most of the time, but when that medevac was happening and I was running on like Canberra early time, which so I had to get up at sort of 2 a.m. local time in Antarctica and work through till 10 o'clock at night to be working 6 a.m. till 8 o'clock at night or whatever in, in Australia, whatever it was in Australia. Yeah. And, but you're having more fun, like every five minutes you're having a phone call with another acronym of another department in Canberra or another team who we're running to ground all these other problems because the rule number one in a crisis is don't make it worse. So the first thing we did is you put all the other stations on a go slow of don't, no one move, no field trips, no other flights that are under, like just everyone just stay put and put a jacket on and, and a beanie and get warm and have a cup of tea because we don't need someone to now break an arm or cut their finger off with an angle grinder or something like that. Just just everyone stay still. So you do that across the, uh, the continent and back at Kingston as they start to, focus everyone on how do we evacuate this patient and yeah we had to get and this was coordinated by my my boss um getting access to a chinese helicopter off a chinese icebreaker that was going to be in the vicinity of our station five days after we declared the emergency and we'd need them to fly a team up to a, a remote runway that was inland from the station they'd be there for five days to build the runway and then at the end of that 10 day that whole 10 day period an american plane could fly the 5,000 kilometers across from mcmurdo stopping at the, the Australian Wilkins Aerodrome uh, near Casey Station, meet the Chinese helicopter with now the patient on it out of Davis, fly them back to Casey and Wilkins and then meet the Australian Airbus A319 that was going to fly from Hobart on a round trip back to Australia. But all under COVID protocols, everyone's wearing full PPE and no one can exchange. You, know, you have to stay socially distanced uh, in the extreme while you're doing a patient handover. And all these ridiculous elements that... It, it all happened so fast and we worked so hard to make it happen and it was just this and we needed favorable weather conditions across most of the southern hemisphere if you, you draw a line from the east and west coast of australia to the south pole that triangle we needed almost perfect weather in most of that triangle or pizza slice of the earth to to get it to work and we like right on the limits of aviation safety the whole way for those weather conditions and they we got it and it all just lined up at actually the the main execution happened at, at 11 p.m at night through to 3 a.m and when all was said and done and the chinese helicopter came back for its last flight to pick up the team from the the remote runway and flying back to station unloaded that helicopter you didn't even shut down we just everyone jumped off we they threw kicked the bags out the back door waved to the pilots and they flew back to their ship to finish their own resupply and move on to the next station. But when all was said and done, that was zero uh, three hundred on the twenty fourth of December, two thousand and twenty, and we sat down the next day for Christmas lunch as a team. And it was such a surreal scenario where we were exhausted. Um, we we're operationally kind of proud of, of what we pulled together in that ten days to, to evacuate the patient and the other guy. But it was bizarre because you go, well, there's now two people that up until yesterday we're here um we've now we still had months to go we didn't know it at that point we wouldn't be home till april we thought we'd be home in march we didn't get home till april and we still had a long road ahead of us to get home and we had to sit down and kind of celebrate our second christmas and yet it was the most unifying moment of family you just i don't think i even said to the team you know you, you can't choose your family and you can't choose who you spend your second christmas with in antarctica and, and sort of merry christmas it was a pretty quiet but 
interesting day when we would have all rather been home uh, back with our family and friends in Australia. And yeah, and even then though, we may not have been able to have dinner with 22 people, given that there was still a lot of lockdowns and other true, restrictions on true. Christmas 2020. So, uh, I mean, what a just absolutely bizarre scenario all of that had been uh, to lead to that moment. And yeah, we, we partied. We, we, it was a pretty subdued Christmas, but a week later when we did New Year's, it was it was a bit more uh, jovial and, and quite a memorable night to let off a bit of steam and, and then realise that, okay, it's now 2021. 2021 will be the year that we get home and the it was kind of relatively smooth sailing from there until the journey home, which uh, maybe we don't talk about that today. Yeah, no, for no. The book for people to, to discover what happened on the ship on the ride home. Yeah, I th- and you've, le- you've g- given a good cue towards that. So, I mean, we've only really touched on probably one or two chapters of the, the whole book, but you kind of, um, in that summary of that, of that uh, medivac, 10 days of uh, international cooperation and so many moving pieces had to be pulled together... And how how satisfying it was, um, I think, and the weather, the extreme weather conditions that you had to work in, I think you've just given everyone a a pretty good glimpse of uh, what what the book's about, because every chapter is about that. <laughs> it's about another yeah. challenge. Yeah. Well, I think in one of the original versions, when I pitched the book, uh, that was the um, that was a kind of prologue was an excerpt of the medical evacuation kind of standing on the helipads watching that Chinese helicopter take the team of five off to the runway sort of wondering if we get the weather whether a the patient would kind of make it through to the the evacuation and and how all that side of it was going versus can we actually operationally evacuate a patient at this time of the year um, in these weather conditions so there was all that uncertainty that was one of the prologues and then we ended up just cutting it and putting it where it sits in the book now in that chapter um, and left the, left the opening of the book to just be right driving into the, driving into the fast ice edge off of Davis standing on the top of the Aurora Australis as the penguins kind of scatter out of the way. And we, we see our station that's to become our home for the year uh, for the first time. It's really good. Look, David, um, I think that's enough of a taster uh, for people about the book. Um, so the book's called 530 day, 37 Days of Winter by David Knopf. Um, where can listeners get it? Uh, you can get it online at uh, Booktopia and, and Amazon or any of the other bookstores online, and it's in most good bookstores around Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's onto its third print run, so we're at 10,000 books printed wow. now. So congratulations. Yeah, cheers. It's been a... I mean, that's only in... They only launched it in July, June. Yeah, June. So it's uh, it's been a, a wild run, and it's also available on audiobook and uh, ebook and everything as well. So if you're an overseas listener and you can't get a physical copy, you can get the ebook okay. or audiobook. So who does the audio? Is it you? No, it's uh, another guy. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Streeton. I think his last okay. name. He did havoc. He did havoc six as well. So it's not me, but he sounds similar enough to me. And I coached him on all the Antarctic uh, phrases and sayings. So the way he pronounces all of the words is the way I pronounce them. So it's as accurate as it can be without being me. Wonderful. Um, last thing then. Um, I think you've already kind of given us a hint, but it, well, mo- most of the listeners on this um, podcast are, are looking for people, are leaders who empower others 
who create supportive and inclusive workplaces um, and, and, and to, do, you know, to do their absolute best. Um, and you've just kind of given us a, an hour and 20 minutes of, of how you've done that. Would you leave any kind of a gem, um, a piece of advice for a leader that wanted to go down your path? I think, uh, like I said before, take your ego out of it and take the feedback and just look to learn out of every scenario and you know, fail fast and fail often because you'll learn a lot more from, from failure than you ever will from success. And if you haven't read poems like If by Rudyard Kipling and The Man in the Arena by, by Teddy Roosevelt about what it means to, to lead and fail and pick yourself up and keep going, and, and that's what it's all about. It won't ever feel successful at the time, and it may not even feel successful afterwards, but that's what, uh, that's what it's all about. Well done. Yeah, and that man in the arena is one of your opening pages in your book, so well done to you. Um, yep. Thank you, David. Um, you've actually delivered way more than I... Th- uh, you delivered what I hoped you would, but um, you've taken it to another level, so it's a pleasure Gosh. to meet you. Um, I hope the, the listeners enjoyed our talk just as much as I did. I, I can guarantee listeners that I'll be re-listening to this myself with my notebook to, get, to enhance my own skills in leadership. That's the end of our interview with David Knopf and really how good was that? Some of his um, preparation for that terrible challenge or um, outstanding challenge that he had at that 537 days of winter in the Antarctica station when they didn't know when they were going to be picked up is just a mind-boggling situation. Some of the things I was really impressed with was, you know, like all great leaders, he actually had probably more than 10, nearly 13 years experience in challenging situations in his DFAT training as a diplomat in places like Pakistan and his training in the army as well prepared him for what was to come in Antarctica. I love some of his, David's um, final messages and I'll just leave you with that really because I can't really say it any better. His message for other leaders at the end was take your ego out of it. Take the feedback when you need to and be like the man in the arena. Never sit on the sidelines. Be part of the team that has a go, win or lose. If you want to purchase purchase David's book, um, you can go to his website, davidnoff.com. So that's D-A-V-I-D-K-N-O-F-F.com and purchase an autographed copy from him from his shop on that website. Or I've just checked out um, Amazon and the book is there as well. So... I hope you enjoy the book um, as I have a copy of it and I can guarantee you it is a fantastic read. Thanks for listening and if you wish to leave a review about this podcast or any other podcast, please leave a review in Apple, Spotify or Google or you can go to our website on alansickard.com and find the feedback section there. Thank you very much. Until next time, we'll see you again in a week. Thank you.